Hello and welcome to another episode of Just a GP. We are so lucky this week. We have Kian Seng Lim as the guest and he's going to do a little bit of demonstrating about the wonders of being Just a GP who has amazing skills on the IT front. So can bring that wonderful general practice vision into how do we use IT to actually really improve patient care. So I'm really excited about this. So welcome, Ken Sen. And thank you very much for having me on board again, Charlotte and Rebecca and Ashley. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Well, there you go. You preempted me. I was going to say I'm joined by Ash and Beck, as usual. The team is looking forward to hearing a little bit more. So I'm not going to introduce you, Ken Singh, any more than that. And I'm going to launch straight into asking for a highlight of your week. Well, highlight of my week is ironically just what kept me a little bit late for this one. And this is, I think, one of those classic situations where as just a GP, as soon as you plan for something, it doesn't go according to plan. And this is where we had our great cyst excision with a medical student present and the patient and partner who was filming it all very nicely. And of course, it never goes according to plan. However, the highlight, I think, is the fact that everyone's amazingly understanding and having that long-standing relationship with the patient and their family means that, well, you're not sweating, you're not getting too fussed about it, and you can laugh it off at the end. So all good. Absolutely. That's sort of like the joys and the curses of general practice. Ash, what's a highlight of your week? Well, apart from having Ken back on the podcast, which I've been looking forward to ever since we had a very mini podcast with him earlier in the pandemic, is that puzzles came back in stock in our local puzzle store and I got three for 30. So <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I went in and I bought three and like there was stocked full of puzzles and there was two women in front of me buying three and one person behind me buying through we're all socially distanced but you know you could see that everyone was feeling the loss of puzzles as a significant event that needed to be rectified much better than toilet paper yes and I mean it's nice because I tend to recycle them on to friends after I've done them so it's like a communal puzzle pool Beck how about you I actually have a few highlights for the week. I've had a really good week this week, but one that stands out from today is I've received the most amazing handover letter for one of my new patients. She's a incredibly complex patient that has moved to a new area and this GP would have had no idea who I was, but she has written the most beautiful letter outlining anything I could possibly want to know about this new patient. And it just oozes with how much care she has for this patient. It was absolutely beautiful. Again, another of those lovely joys, isn't it? So my highlight of the week is completely different. Mine is food oriented and it was the opportunity to just have a whole day of just cooking and I subscribed to Delicious magazine and it just happened to be one of those magazines this month where I just felt inspired and I had a lovely time doing both savoury and sweet. But the highlight actually was this cauliflower cheese, which just sounds ordinary, but it was amazingly delicious. And it used the Chinese dried mushroom in it. And it was just the extra flavour was just, oh, food is so good. 
but let's move from food. And I think that's the second time that you've brought up food as your highlight. And I can remember the previous one was all about halloumi. And I imagine that you are an amazing cook. So I look forward to the time when we can fearlessly or easily travel interstate and, and cook with each other. That sounds like an opportunity waiting to happen, isn't it? That sounds good. So Ken's saying, let's go to a different sort of cooking, which is the idea of how do we mix up the ingredients of an IT platform as a tool to really enhance patient care. And I'm just going to hand over to you at that point. Thanks, Charlotte. It's a really good question because a lot of the time it strikes me that the IT platforms we've had are done by someone who's just thinking about what it is that we are doing currently. Whereas I think sometimes a good place to start is for us to actually say, where is it we want to go? What is it we want to do? And then we deconstruct that and we say, what are the principles that we are aiming for? And then we say, what do we need to get us there? So that more or less describes our journey. And our journey is, as many would know, a quest to reach that patient-centered medical homeness. So we are trying to achieve a better quality of care for our patients, so a better patient experience, but we're also trying to do that in an environment where we have better practice team experience. In fact, I'll take it a little bit further, better care team experience. And I do use that word quite advisedly because the practice team is no longer just within the practice. The care team now is much, much broader than that. So the problem is that, as I think many of us would know, you start to get a bit frustrated with the tools that you have. So let's deconstruct that. So what are the principles? What does that care look like? And this is where we had to say to ourselves, imagine if, and what if? So what if we were able to do all the things we could do? What would that look like? Imagine if we could do this, what would that look like? So if I use an example, what if we were able to identify which patients amongst our patient cohort needed care at the time when they needed it? What if we could actually reach out to them and actually help them where they are? And what if it isn't just the GP doing it? So I'm going to use the just a GP thing in another context. So it's no longer just the GP, but it's actually the general practice team which is doing this because it actually becomes quite clear that to provide that better quality, you can't actually do it on your own as just a GP. You actually have to do it as a whole care team. And so what are the requirements that you need? So this is where we come back to those six principles, which are so beloved of anyone who likes patient-centered medical homes, those principles being patient-centeredness, accessibility, continuity of care, comprehensiveness of care, and coordination of care, and the last one being the focus on safety and quality. Continuity is the interesting one because we have to really dissect that one again and think of that in the three domains of continuity being continuity of information, continuity of relationships, which is very much a lot of what we talk about in general practice, but is something which we sometimes actually need to focus on as in relationship with the general practice team rather than just a general practitioner. And of course, the third part, which is continuity of management, because the irony of having a team is that it actually becomes a little bit trickier sometimes to maintain good continuity of management. And there is a risk that gaps will start to occur. 
So in order to do that, we found we needed a better software platform. And it then became apparent that we couldn't do this with just the GP team alone. Then we needed to have the patient and their carers actively engaged. And so the platform that we had to develop then grew. So this is how we move from the general practice slash PCMH world into the IT world, because we wanted something better. We wanted something more, and it wasn't there. And no one was going to build it for us, so we had to build it ourselves. So that's how we got into health software. And that is how, as part of our health software journey, we developed our product. I don't want to be here selling the products. I'm not actually going to mention names. I'll just say it is the Patient Practitioner Partnership Platform. And it's there to help patients to connect with their providers. But what it consists of is a patient-sided application, the doctor or provider-sided applications. And this allows the transfer of data, whether that be biometrics, such as blood pressures, weights, blood glucose levels, or questionnaires. So patient-reported outcomes, patient-reported experiences, asthma symptom scores, COPD assessment scores, or any other validated questionnaire that we wish to put into the platform. And this could all be visualized by the providers or the practice team on a dashboard, which meant that we could quite rapidly see who was deteriorating, who was going in the red zone, who's in the green zone, and message those out there accordingly. So a use case, a really good use case I'd like to describe is the last year's bushfires, where we were able to send messages out to all patients with COPD and asthma on days of high air hazard days. And we were able to say, do your symptom scores, do your peak flows, whatever you've got, and we will check them. And we could then identify who was destabilizing, reach out to them before they got worse, and either get them to follow their asthma action plan or COPD action plan, which I should add was actually already being messaged to them automatically through the application itself, because we would put the plan into the application so that if a patient were to enter, say, a peak flow, which was 30% below their predicted, the plan would flash up and say, increase your medication by X until your peak flow comes up to this level. If it drops below this level, do this and so forth. So there's a lot of this messaging happening automatically, but I was able to supervise by the team. I'm getting trapped, Ken. I'm fascinated by that one. So you put in algorithms. How much work is it for you as a GP when you're doing the plan to put that in or does the software help you? Well, for us, it was much easier. You are right when it's algorithms or the better way to put it is it's actually a rules-based engine. So we put the rules into the software as a template. And it's actually not that hard because if you think about an asthma action plan, it's 20%, 20%, 20%. So it's just a case of putting in that particular algorithm. It's 20% less than your best peak flow, 20% below that and so forth. And so it's really a case then of filling in the gaps. And so as far as the software template algorithm goes, once you've defined what those steps are, then all you need to do is enter the best peak flow or the best symptom score or whatever. Similarly, for COPD, you can do something similar, or you can go with other rough guides for people who are not using reporting tools of that sort, and you can go with questionnaires. So you can do the same for K10, so Kessler Psychological Distress Scores. You can do the same for any questionnaire, but then you customize it for each patient when you're doing the care plan. So because the software actually does that all in the background, 
all you do is you put in your target. So for example, for an asthmatic, you write down what is your target peak flow, and then the software calculates the risk for the plan. And then as a provider, you modify it accordingly and customize it for the patient before it appears in their application on their mobile device, such that when they enter the value, they are automatically given a notification based on that value. So you are doing well, keep it up, or a are you okay, contact the care team, or a this is really bad, you need to contact your care team as soon as possible. So those are the sorts of variations that you get. It doesn't take a lot longer than doing a normal care plan, but it gives you a better quality care plan. And at the end of it, our total numbers of patients with COPD and asthma who either were admitted or had to present to ED over the whole bushfire season last year was zero out of all of our monitored patients. So we thought that was a pretty good success rate. As we say, small numbers, association, can't really say this is a randomized controlled trial, but nonetheless, as a proof of concept, we were quite happy with what we managed to do. If I can dig into a slightly different area. So for me, I'm quite passionate about preventing cardiovascular disease. Does the software help lead you into appropriate absolute and otherwise cardiovascular risk by prompting you to ask the right questions and get that data in for that record as well? No. So what we've done then, we did take the position that the software itself is not the be-all and end-all. This is a tool to go between providers and patients to help to improve patient literacy and self-care. The cardiovascular risk assessment tools and things are already on our desktops, for us anyway, or it could be available through other commercial products such as Pen Top Bar, which is another product we use. And so we already had all of those tools. However, what this was, was about actioning those results. So with those results, we could import some of those results into the patient application such that a patient is able to see where they should be in order to reduce their risk. So for example, their cholesterol results would be synchronized with our CMS, our clinical management system, and it would also be coded. So it would be color coded as green, orange, or red, so that as a patient, you're able to see whether you are at your target levels or not at your target levels. And you're also able to receive contextualized advice within your app once that goes in saying, this, follow this, look at this video, here's this recipe book sheet. And similarly, our dietitians, exercise physiologists and pharmacists in our practice were also able to follow up with the patient quite proactively on that through to uh, sending them recipes or asking patients to send them pictures of their meals so that they could advise them as to what to do or not to do. Ken, I think this is so fascinating and it makes me so excited that this could be the future of how we help people to manage their health. And I really like the approach of not looking at developing software for what we are doing now, but how we can be delivering better healthcare in the future. And I think given that we're still in May and we're still in I guess, at least in the world, in the midst of a, a pandemic. And a month ago, we were in the thick of it in terms of planning for uh, surging cases in Australia. I really noticed 
the deficiencies of working primarily as a GP in a clinic, but not necessarily in a home type model where everyone kind of does their own thing and manages their own patients in their own way with the different team members in their own way. And it did kind of help me to see the benefits of that kind of home model. But I am interested in the GPs out there listening to this that may be a little bit nervous about the home model and what that might look like and how that might affect their practice in the future as to what you have found useful about it, how your model is slightly different from what people might think it would be and what have been the not so good things about it. There's really a few important points to say. The first one is that it does benefit from having a well-integrated care team working with you. However, the benefits of having a web-based platform, in fact, any sort of software like this, is that all of a sudden your care team, so your medical home team, do not actually have to be on-premise with you. So to put this in perspective, one of our nurses was pregnant during all this time. So she was and has been working from home. And in fact, that's been an amazing part of this. It's meant that we've been able to say to her, that's fine. You can go home. You can still keep doing all you do from home. Your job now is chronic disease management. And that's it. So your job is you will look after this cohort of patients. You will escalate them to us and we will have discussions and you can help coordinate that care with other members of the care team. Another example of this, and it's interesting, actually, that you mentioned about the coronavirus crisis, is that we also developed another module to work within this platform called the COVID platform. And this was being used by the coronavirus or the COVID clinic at Western Sydney, who were able to enroll patients in that who did not have a usual GP. They would apply the usual questionnaires, slot the questionnaires into the patient application, which the patient then completed themselves and then transferred care to us in our practice electronically so that we could continue the care remotely, monitoring the same dashboard, seeing whether a patient was deteriorating according to their symptom scores or not, as the case may be, and then intervening, which might mean at one case sending back to the clinic. In other cases, it would mean we do a video consult with them, which we could also do through the platform itself. Or amazingly enough, we also found some other interesting things, such as we found we that uh, patients were happy to share the numbers of steps a day. And we actually found one of these COVID positive patients was not isolating because the number of steps she was doing per day was um, massive. It was way in excess of what you think you could do in a two-bedroom apartment. And so on further questioning, we were able to identify that she was not. She'd been going out to the park at nighttime and going for a few jogs around, which probably under the circumstances, she probably didn't bring anyone to any harm, but was nonetheless not isolating. So there's some interesting things which we've discovered along the way. Uh, one of the really interesting things is that your team no longer has to be co-located. Your team can be anywhere. And so we've now got our team working from outside of our practice, and we've actually expanded our practice without actually expanding our physical footprint. So our rooms are the same. What we've had instead is more people working with us, but not working on premise anymore. So it's changed the model. It's now a decentralized team. 
Can you just describe a little bit about how the model that you're working with may be different from what people's perceptions are? And I know it's hard to know what people's perceptions are, but I'm sure you're having worked in this space for a little while, you can have an idea about hesitations that are out there. So there's probably a few different hesitations. There's always the one about money, where everyone worries that, where everyone says, what about all this time you're spending which you're not getting paid for? And that is true to some extent in that looking at dashboards is not something that you get paid for. On the other hand, there are swings and roundabouts. So which means that if you can spend time doing that, but it gives you efficiencies later, then that's a benefit. The second one is always about teams. How do teams work and what about this outreach care? Interestingly enough, this coronavirus crisis and the access to telehealth items now means that having that sort of outreach capacity is actually a benefit. And having the team to assist us with that outreach capacity has actually been a huge benefit. So what we can say in our practice is that the numbers of patients who are missing out on preventive care items is no higher now than it was before the coronavirus crisis. And we know that because we can see the statistics, but also because we have now been able to dedicate team members to assist with that task quite specifically. So what that means is if we really drill down is that it does take time, it does take organization. And so the fears of the lack of remuneration to some extent have been pushed back a little bit, not all of them because time spent looking at dashboards is still time spent. The fears of losing control, interestingly enough, are probably less with this scenario because you actually have better visibility of what's going on because you have full visibility of all the messaging and it actually puts a GP back in the role of the coordinator, the conductor of care. And if you like, allows the GP to really focus on the things which do need to be done and have others to assist to make sure that we, because we are just GPs, don't forget things. So that's another element. And then the other thing which people always worry about is that if you open the floodgates, what if we let patients contact us all the time? What if we let, what if we give them our email address, our mobile phones, etc.? Funny thing about that one. Firstly, I think those of us who have already given patients our mobile numbers and stuff will have found that they're mostly quite responsible about calling us. Second thing, of course, is that we found that using a more open system where patients are able to access us through this secure messaging system that we have built into the platform, they actually don't. And they tend to really only let us know when something is very important. I think what that tells us is that most patients actually have better things to do with their time than worry about their health, which is good and bad. So there are times we do want people to worry about their health, but it seems to be that they've probably got better things to do with their life. Nonetheless, my take home on that one is that it is a different structure. It does require planning, and that's the big investment part. It does require an upskilling of practice staff. So practice nurses may need some upskilling, allied health work with us. They have to be part of the team. They actually have to be able to work as part of a team. So not everyone is going to be up to this. However, the benefits now of having a digital platform are that you can now start thinking of sourcing team members from anywhere. So it's no longer a geographically restricted condition. So now that we consider that most allied health actually do have access to telehealth items as well, 
This now means that the capacity to use and pick and customize a team which is best for our patients is now much easier than it once was. I'm interested in specifically the patient's perspective. What I found with this last few months telehealth transition is that patients initially loved it and loved the fact that they were able to source their healthcare from their home. But recently, we've had quite a number of patients who have wanted to essentially go back to the way it was or who actually never were comfortable with telehealth to start with and only used it if they absolutely have to. How have you found patients' responses to it? And have you had many who just can't be convinced that this is a good alternative? So like all alternatives, like all platforms, I think we have to be mindful that this is not going to be right for all patients. There's two sides to that answer. One of them is that it might not be right for the patient, but it might work for a patient's carers. We do have a subset of patients for whom the primary user of the application is actually their son, their daughter, their mother, father, or sibling, but someone else in the family. Because for them, it is sometimes easier to be able to access care in this way than to take a day off work to bring their relative in. So that's one way. Second thing to say, of course, is not everyone is ready to make the jump to this sort of technology. And I definitely would say that this does not replace face-to-face. It's an adjunct to -to face-to-face. It helps to augment what we can do. And it is not just synchronous real-time communication. It's asynchronous communication, which we've actually found to be more useful in many ways. But nonetheless, patients will dip into this at their own pace, according to their comfort. And of course, the ultimate level of comfort is if they are not comfortable with this, there is still care as normal. So this is another part of the offerings that we can offer our patients. So it's part of where we can say we can add value to a patient with this, but someone else may feel that they prefer to go with more traditional methods of care, which we are okay with as well. Patient-centeredness is really about what is right for each person on our evaluations, and we tend to use the PAM score, the patient activation measure to evaluate patients. What we've found is that most patients who do start using these applications go up by one PAM level. So there are four PAM levels. For those who are not familiar with the PAM scores, patient activation measures are a validated tool to measure a patient's capacity in three domains. Those three domains are the importance of health management, their confidence with health management and their capacity for problem solving. And so a high PAM score is associated with a reduced risk of hospitalization for any cause independent of socioeconomic or demographic status, and in fact, independent of other health status as well. Whereas a low PAM score is of course the opposite and associated with increased hospitalization risks. As a matter of interest, We also PAMed or did PAM scores. We tend to use the word PAM as a verb. We also PAMed all our patients before and after hospital admissions. And oddly, or perhaps not oddly enough, for those of us who are just GPs, we would find that most patients and their relatives would drop by one PAM level after each hospital separation. And it would take us about three months to build up that PAM level again. So another reason why hospitalization is not good for you. So we shouldn't have just announced a whole bunch of billion dollars for the most essential services hospitals? 
Well, that's, I can talk for a long time about where we're best spending our money. And I think we can say there's very good evidence as to where we should be spending money. But there is, I think, another element, which is that if you were to say, put all the money into general practice, you would also want to make sure that the money was being spent in the right way and make sure that it was actually being spent effectively. So I think that we all had to take our part in being responsible and actually doing our bit to provide the best quality care, which includes hospitals, making sure that they are effective, appropriate and efficient. So being devil's advocate then, when we compare not only how well Australia does in terms of managing health globally in regular times, but also how well Australia was able to mobilise all the healthcare sector to come together and get a bit of a control over COVID at this stage in time. Why change it? That's a good one, because if we look at some measures, Australia actually does very well. So when we look at total health outcomes, Australia does well overall, usually in the top two, three in the world for most things. And if you look at the bang for buck, which means the amount that is spent versus the outcomes which are obtained, Australia actually does really, really well. So on that score, you would also say that there is no burning platform for change. And in a sense, that's also where our problem starts, because unlike other countries, we don't have that same burning platform. Unlike the US, with spending above double what we do here, and their outcomes are less than half of what we get here. But on the other hand, when we look at health equity, we're not doing so well on that. When we look at access, our access is actually not as good as it might seem. So what's interesting is that we can actually do better. When we look at what we call care gaps, and that is the number of patients who have not had things done. If we take, say, obvious things, cohorts of patients with type 2 diabetes, what percentage have not had their A1Cs done in the last 12 months? What percentage have not had it done in the last two years? Even something as simple as what percentage of patients with hypertension have actually had a blood pressure check in the last 12 months? It's quite disheartening when we actually look at figures from what we would consider to be really good practices and find we're often seeing numbers of 30% or 40% or so for those. So there are substantial gaps in ways we can improve. And so for me, it's partly a question of can we do this better? Not necessarily do we need to spend more, but can we actually do this better, partly with what we've got, and then how much better can we do? But there is another part, and that is the trajectory of the health spend. And the trajectory of the health spend in Australia is on par with most developed countries, which means increasing at probably double the rate of CPI and inflation, doubling and also doubling the rate of population growth. So it's all growing at an unsustainable rate. So when we look at it that way, we're doing okay, but there is a crash and this is not a sustainable situation. Unfortunately, one of our challenges is going to be to get governments to realize that if you spend more money on hospitals, you are not going to actually reduce or change this curve. The money needs to be spent before that, and it needs to be spent effectively. And I'm going to go out there on a limb and say that doubling of Medicare rebates or adding a longer rebate fee here or there probably isn't going to be enough. We're going to really think of how we integrate systems better how we can provide better care at an individual patient level, but also make the optimal use of all the resources we have. 
And in a resource-constrained environment, and that pretty much applies to all of us in general practice, it is about using tools which can make us more efficient, hence my interest in the IT solutions, but also recognizing that IT solutions are not a solution in themselves. They are there to assist us to do our normal care. So normal care and systems of care come first, with the IT solutions being the enablers, which help them, which help us to be more effective and more efficient. You sing from my song sheet, Ken Sing. What's really fascinating is how hard it is to enthuse the people who fund us to actually understand that and to know how to do it. I mean, particularly going back to Ash's thing about the funding for hospitals. I mean, hospitals just have that sort of sexy factor and politicians really like announcing that they're funding hospitals and it just never sounds quite so good when they say they're funding primary care. So we just need to be able to get that dialogue out to have people understand the power of this well-coordinated care, where hospitals fit in with that, but how we do actually need to sort of reinvest in working on identifying the gaps and making it fun for everybody to be part of the team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the big issues is the way hospitals themselves are funded and that activity-based funding encourages activity. So they're funded on outputs, not on outcomes. And one of the problems is that if you get a better outcome and you reduce your activity and outputs, you're actually not going to be any better off. So we do need to look at ways we examine the whole funding model. I mean, I'm a big fan of regional pooled funding models. I think some of our best examples that we look across the ditch to New Zealand and say the Canterbury model, the Canterbury alliancing model, which has managed to quite successfully flatten their curve, not with coronavirus, but their curve of hospital admissions and hospital utilization to the point where despite growing population levels, and in some cases growing disadvantage, they have not had to build any more hospital beds. So that itself has got to be a sign of success. I really like that measure, the decreased need for more hospital spending because it's not required. Yeah, isn't that an exciting thought? We could actually create a decreased need for hospitals. I think that if we think of things from the perspective of wellness, that's really what we're all about, which is this is another type of wellness. Wellness can be interpreted or can be thought of in many ways. I mean, we often think about wellness in terms of how it is if you are already well, but even if you are one of the 50% of our population who do have one or more chronic condition, wellness is being better than what you are. Wellness is about maintaining stability sometimes. So it's again, patient centeredness is what is needed for each person. It's not about saying this is the recipe for everyone. It's about saying this is what can be done. This is what is available to you as an individual. And this is how we can stand or walk with you along this journey. Along with their willingness to do it, because I often think sometimes we don't understand that it's okay for people to say no, and this is the best I can do. I think that's a great way to put it. And I'm going to add, this is one of the other advantages of having a team because the whole team means that it doesn't necessarily have to be just the GP who does the work on that. It actually is everyone in the team coming together and saying, okay, 
you've got a pretty good rapport with Mrs. Smith. How about you have a chat with her about this and see? And if that doesn't work, we'll say, let's see what happens the next time we talk. But it's about staging it and having that capacity to stage behavior change. Because I think we all know behavior change doesn't happen in one go. Behavior change needs to have the right time, the right people, the right elements, and it's steps. You've been so inspiring, Ken Singh, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to draw us to a close, which means we're going to give a clinical tips. But I'm going to publicly announce that we want to have you back on again so that we might be able to explore a little bit of what you just touched on at one point about the telehealth and how we use telehealth to improve that access element. And also, I think, to be able to identify some of those gaps and do that work with nurses better. But anyway, that's the tantalising moment. So what's your clinical tip of the week? Well, I think after all we've been talking about, my clinical tip for the week has got to be, we have to have that impossible dream. We have to be dreaming of what it is we can get to. And so if you wanted to go somewhere, look for that thing, ask that question, what if, and imagine if, and then no matter how impossible it is, we find a way to make bits of it happen. It doesn't all have to happen at once. We make it happen in steps. Great thought. Thank you. Ash, what about you? I have found a new app that came through on some emails this week. It's called Drinks Meter and appears to be New South Wales Health funded. But it's it's really cool because what it does is you enter in each day what kind of drink you have and Unlike the standard drink meter things, it's got a bit more flexibility in terms of the size of what you have. Like you can select a can and then you can select the percentage of the can that you're drinking in terms of alcohol. Then you can say how many you had on that day and you can add a favorites. So if you tend to drink the same thing often, then you can add that to your favorites and then you can log what you drink throughout the week and then you can say how much you spent on the drinks each day and at the end of the week you can calculate how many standard drinks you had over the course of a total week. It tells you how many calories and kilojoules that you drank and then it shows you how many calories was equivalent to your recommended daily calorie intake and it has a little pictorial thing of how many people's worth of alcohol you drank and then it shows you how what food that is equivalent to how many cheeseburgers how many chocolate bars how many bags of potato chips and how many apples that was so it's a really nice tool to put it into real terms of what that's equivalent to and I think probably going to be used more by doctors than patients themselves but I thought it was really fun Reminds me of an app I often use, which I'll throw in as my tip of the week, which is the quit smoking app. The one aspect of that I really like is the savings. And so you put in what you normally smoke and then how much money you've saved by not smoking anymore. And I had one of my patients tell me that they'd saved $30,000 since downloading that app. Wow. Amazing. That's pretty impressive. Well, thanks. And I'll finish off with if anyone is interested in COVID, which they might not be, as we're probably over COVID, but it's still there in front of us. The ACI has the most wonderful group that they've set up called the Critical Intelligence Unit. So if you go to the ACI website, they have got a button that puts you into the unit 
and there's a daily bulletin on all of the research and basically they have this amazing team of clinicians from across all specialties including general practice mark harris is the gp on this team and they spend hours just going through all of the emergent research to be able to give us answers to the questions that we need as we go forward. So if you're interested, it's a great place to go and just have a daily update if nothing else. So on that note, I'm going to formally close and say thank you so much, Ken Singh. I'm gonna to listen to this podcast myself several times just to be able to be inspired by some of the possibilities um, that we can do as being just a GP in a team with a good platform. And I've got to say thank you very much for this opportunity again. It is always great to talk to you. And it is actually perfectly fine to be just a GP, but it's even better to be part of a just a GP team. Absolutely. So thanks, everybody, and see you next podcast. Thank you.